Big Swinging Stocks acknowledges the traditional custodians of Australia's lands, skies and waterways and pays respects to elders past, present and emerging. This podcast is brought to you by SelfWealth and operates under AFSL number 421789 as general advice only. Because we can't take into account your personal objectives or financial situation, you should seek independent professional financial advice before making any investment decision. For more information and our financial disclosure statement, check the show notes. net worth over 180000 It took me almost a decade to get here. I did not, in fact, know what I was doing. You're learning to be patient. People making big wins on trades. This is to reassure you that not everyone everywhere has their life together from the get-go. Let's take you back a while. A few decades, in fact, disconnected from Australia. I did what I thought was a very smart financial move, but I had not done the most important thing. I want you for a moment to think back to your first money memory. Responsibly saving, responsibly Responsibly investing. You're killing it. As teenagers, you can think you're pretty smart. Or at least I did. And on paper, there was probably too many good grades validating a serious lack of financial acumen. I had validated an over-indexed sense that I knew what I was doing. Spoiler, I did not, in fact, know what I was doing when I was thousands of dollars in debt, earning 13 times less than what I owed the bank per week. And the internet can be such a non-stop highlight reel. People making big wins on trades. Stock going to 111,000 million percent. People making billions on crypto, buying houses, getting six-figure bonuses, promotions. This is not that. This is for anyone who is currently or has ever been in a place financially that made them feel uncomfortable, anxious, unsure. This is to reassure you that not everyone everywhere has their life together from the get-go and that if you feel like you're going backward, it's okay. Life now can seem glossy on paper. I have a net worth over 180000 an investment property, I'm a lawyer, I own over six figures. It could all seem easy. We spend too much time talking about the end goal and never enough about the journey there. And quite frankly, the road from $0 to $180,000 in net worth, it sucked. It was long, it was slow, and half the time, I was going backwards. While the now seems really flashy, I need to take you back a while. A few decades, in fact. My grandparents came to Australia with nothing. It's actually hard to impress on anyone who came from intergenerational wealth what starting from scratch is like. And as a recipient of their hard work and the life they built, I'm just as in awe. They had no safety net. They had very little family here, and yet they managed to build homes, provide their kids a safety net, and from frugality and hard work, built a fairly solid financial base. And almost four decades from the day they arrived in Australia, I was born. Being first-generation Australian is a very peculiar experience. You feel at once disconnected from your ancestry and disconnected from Australia. Not to mention, there is a chip on your shoulder, a need to prove myself that is about the size of the guilt I carry from my grandparents' sacrifice. And yet, it was still different. I was different. My friends at school spent most school holidays in Thailand or skiing, And we only went overseas to visit family in Serbia every couple of years. We spent most school holidays renovating our house. And though we might ignore it in Australia, class disparities exist. The top 1% of Australians own the combined wealth of the bottom 60%. And while it continued to get worse during COVID, these disparities have been building for decades. 
Data by the UNSW Social Research Policy Centre showed that while the average household wealth hit $1 million in Australia in 2018, average wealth of the top 20% was $3.25 million, while the lowest 20% of Australians had an average net worth of $36,000. Now, I did the math for you. That's a 90 times multiplier. And to me, I wasn't living among the wealthiest, but the disparity between the middle class was so obvious to me. And while wealth can sometimes be quiet in Australia, to me, it felt loud. I grew up in the grey of the lower middle class. We were not poor. I never wanted for anything, and it is perhaps why, growing up as the social media generation, I could see wealth. I could see its shine. And it looked attainable, if only I did the right things. Looking back, I don't feel embarrassment for my younger self. Instead, I see a lot of my younger self's actions as double duty. I wanted to prove that I was as smart as the opportunities my family had provided for me. And I wanted to purchase the life I thought rich people were leading. I wanted to go overseas. I wanted to buy new clothes. I wanted to do well at school. And yet, I had not an ounce of financial acumen. So fresh out of school, barely 18, working part-time at a retail store, I did what I thought was a very smart financial move. I got a credit card out. And get this, I did it to (laughs) build credit. I will tell you now, my friend, I had no idea what building credit meant. I had no idea what you were building it for. I had simply heard that somewhere and thought, that sounds like a brilliant idea. The irony is that getting this credit card should not have been as dangerous. I come from a family of exceptional savers, naturally frugal people who are good at stretching a dollar. But me, fresh with a paycheck that I only had to spend on board and a phone bill? Goodness, I was home free and the credit card was an additional $3,000 in free money. I went back through my statements just for this episode and I want to read you some of the entries. Widner, $150. Widner. $45. Same day too. Gloria Jeans, $5.45. Sushi, $8. Food, food, food. The list goes on. It is absolutely tragic that I racked up that much debt and there was really nothing to show for it. I don't own or remember a single item of clothing I bought at this time. Within months, yes, months, the card was maxed out. The humiliation The humiliation of being in debt when I had money coming in, when I was working two jobs, when I had nothing really to show for it. That chip on my shoulder was starting to itch. Two things happened around the same time, which woke me up from this spending-induced fever dream. One was, I think, getting declined for a $2 cheeseburger at McDonald's. And the other was my parents getting divorced. Nothing sobers you like realising you don't have $2 to rub together at the same time that your parents, who have destroyed themselves working their entire lives, would, after the divorce, have very little to show for all those efforts. I think I realised I was on the exact same trajectory. Work without accumulating any meaningful assets and then retire with nothing. If you're wondering why the fear compounded, I'm an only child. I saw a bleak future where my financial choices would dictate their future financial stability, their elder care, their housing. That chip on my shoulder got a little deeper. 
it started to burn. But I've always tended towards action. I didn't want to live like this. And I refused to allow them to live like this simply because I didn't learn from their mistakes and my own. Proclamations aside, it actually takes a really long time to get out of debt. And it takes a long time to work off the stupid tax. And I had accumulated it in spades. I didn't know a budget from a budgie. And I had $3,000 of credit card debt with $300 or less a week in pay. So for a while there, it was just working to pay debt. But I threw everything I had at it. Here's how I did it. The first thing to understand is that I had a lot of privileges that are important to contextualize this journey. My parents didn't need money and they were in good health. While I had to pay board, I lived at home and my job was semi-consistent retail income. But I was financially irresponsible. I had a bad habit of trying to put 100% of my weekly wages to my debt, but that was unsustainable. And much like crash diets, every week I was hungry. So I tried to change that approach. Instead, I would put two thirds of my wages onto my credit card and any spare change I came across. And then the rest I would have set aside for my phone bill, food and transport. Really, The success came not from being militant about trying to spend zero dollars because it's impossible, but from being consistent. So I paid off the debt, but I can't say I was perfect at spending and my finances were not improving in a straight line. And when you account for my hex debt, I was actually going backwards. And paying off debt did not immediately result with me being good at money. I was just good at sending money to my credit card debt. I was still bad at everything else because you can pay down debt and try and spend zero dollars every day and maybe you'll succeed. But I had not done the most important thing, which was get to the bottom of why I had gotten to the bottom in the first place. I want you for a moment to think back to your first money memory. We talk a lot on BSS about investing memories, but generally speaking, your money memories go back a little further. It will likely be your first interaction with money, having it or not having it. Try to remember what it felt like, what you experienced. You can pause here and do this exercise because if you really think back to that first money memory, it might actually be quite an influential experience. For a lot of us, that first experience with money sets the tone for forever. My first money memory was realising we weren't as wealthy as everyone else. My parents were trying to renovate an old house in a good suburb, slowly, on their own. My primary school friends lived in beautiful, pristine houses and drove luxury cars. I was eight, and I woke up to the fact that it wasn't simply poor and not poor, but an entire range of grey. But I convinced my mum to purchase me the Tamagotchi that I desperately wanted and the pens that everyone in class had. And that was my first money memory. I realised you can purchase the life you want. It took a lot of time. I was probably 22 before I really nailed my spending habits. But the reckoning was simple. I could not outspend my emotions. Spending money has an interesting impact on your body. Dopamine was thought to be released from purchasing and was a justification for shopping addiction. But this is false. 
Dopamine is released by your body in anticipation of a reward from the moment before you tap your card, the moment before you trade. It is why so many people experience buyer's remorse when spending isn't linked to your values, the rush of emotions is quickly killed off by guilt after a purchase. There is nothing but regret. 22 was a game-changing year because while I was working a full-time job, I made two major changes. The first might seem extraordinarily, ridiculously simple, but I wrote down what I wanted financially. More importantly, I started with what I wanted to feel. At that time, and still today, my primary motivator is wanting to feel financially stable. Over time, the how of financial stability has changed. At that time, it just meant a full-time job. Now, it means a passive income of over $150,000 a year. But from there, I worked out what would eventually get me there. For me, it was buying assets which were going to appreciate. I was fairly familiar with property as an investment, but less so with the stock market. But 2016 was a technological revolution. There were options to invest that didn't require thousands. So I put a plan in place. I wanted a $30,000 house deposit and I wanted to start investing a minimum of $1,000. At this stage, I was probably earning around about $50,000 to $60,000 a year. But the most important step came last, working out what I had to do to get there. I had to save $1.6,000 per month and invest $42 a fortnight. It was probably going to be hard, but it wasn't going to be impossible. It was actually this step, the muddy, murky middle, that I credit with most of the upswing in my net worth though a decent amount of thanks must go to drastically increasing my income as I became a qualified lawyer. But I've stuck by this approach. From a net worth in the proverbial toilet, I found the annual goals a good way to set a focus point, but then each fortnight I'd automate the movement of money to get to that goal. It was easier to nail aggressive goals if I wasn't actively making the tiny little choices each week. Instead, the choice was made once. Funnily enough, I was never able to be as disciplined about fitness, but I suppose there's no way to automate getting myself out for a run. But am I being repetitive if I say it's okay to go backwards? It is okay to feel like getting your net worth to 100,000 is hard. It's so hard. It's so hard. It is harder still for people who aren't living at home, who have a consistent income, whereas I was beginning to grow my income. It'd be harder without a financial safety net, without a family who might need financial support on the minimum wage. There are so many factors that can compound how difficult growing your wealth is. But it's also hard because quite frankly, you're learning your hardest lessons. You're learning to be disciplined, unlike me who overcapitalized into the stock market and had to sell because she hadn't factored in her car insurance and rego hitting at the same time. You're learning to be patient, unlike me, who checked her stock portfolio every day. You're learning to save and how to invest in a way that works for you. But the road to $100,000 is mostly hard because it is all you. Every dollar and dime is on your shoulders. 
Your dividends aren't doing much. Your capital gains don't generally accrue millions overnight. And if they do, they're more likely to drop as well. Your ability to invest is limited by your income, which is also still growing. But goodness, that road to 100,000 is paved only by your actions. The capital gains and dividend investment is a perk that comes later, which is ironic because you need the help the most at first. So from 23, buying an apartment, 24, focusing on investing into my brokerage and superannuation, and then every year from then getting more aggressively focused on adding money to my investments. At the start, it was just me working full-time, focusing on getting promoted multiple times, becoming a lawyer, and actually channeling that additional money into investments as opposed to spending it. That was a revelation that took time. It's worth mentioning that you don't need to be a lawyer to do this. I chose a high-stress, high-paying job because I need therapy, and it's likely a byproduct of a deep-seated desire to prove myself. But there are those out there in the FIRE movement in a wide range of careers teachers, physios, tradies, who are using the same frugal principles to work their way to financial freedom, whatever that looks like for them. But I will grant it is a little easier with some jobs. It took putting in place sustainable systems, responsibly saving, responsibly investing, but mostly seeing that end goal, financial stability, and channeling every decision towards that end goal. This past year, my direct contributions into the stock market have totaled almost $15,000, but my net worth hasn't shifted much. So I'm right there with you when I say it is okay to go backwards or just even to feel like you're going backwards. In 2021, almost 300,000 investors made their first trade. In 2020, 435,000 people traded for the first time. To any of you who have started investing for the first time, I wanted to say welcome from one recent investor to another. But mostly I wanted to say it took me almost a decade to get here. With the market downturn, it can feel like you're sliding backwards and that the red will never stop. But it felt that way for our parents in the GFC. And it felt that way for anyone investing back in March 2020. And it will feel that way again sometime too. In these situations, I find two things help. Having enough cash on hand to deal with any unexpected emergencies so you're not cashing out your stocks at a loss. And continuing to invest what you can afford. Responsibly. Emphasis on the responsibly. If there is anything I've learned from a decade learning to manage my own money and my own emotions as they pertain to money... It's that moderation is key. Over the last eight years, while there have been setbacks, I've also made deliberate decisions in pursuit of an end goal, to stay in law, to funnel any savings into investments and not trade, but to invest that money, to set aside equal amounts for a home loan, but mostly to make sure that each month I was crawling, inching a little closer to financial independence by hell or high water. So no matter where you are in your journey, remember, it's a long game. And as long as you're moving even remotely closer to a slightly better financial position each month, you're killing it. <laughs>